Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You talk to anybody in Hollywood, they would tell you that Jim Hecht is responsible for bringing us winning time. That's a show on HBO right now about the Los Angeles Lakers. It's an incredible show. And most importantly, though, more importantly than that, Jim is 20 years sober. And for people like him that have achieved success in sobriety, and he talks about illustrating his ups and downs in sobriety, as we say, it's not all unicorns and rainbows, but for somebody like him that has achieved success like this to share a story with us about his sobriety um, and how he was brought to his knees makes this whole thing so relatable and inspiring. His wife, Courtney Friel, a news anchor on KTLA right now out in California, Philly girl, uh, formerly of Fox News. She joined us about a year ago, if you might remember that. So this is our first husband and wife duo, and they are a winning team. I talked to Jim about this guy who's out in California, hitting meetings and playing music as well. Kevin Souza. So in my wheelhouse, it's it's out of control. Okay, I, I think your wife Courtney told you who's sober that she was on this podcast like about a year ago, and uh, mm-hmm. and you know she I'm talking to her. She's from Philly. She's in TV news. I'm in TV news, and then she tells me that her husband's sober and that he's working on the Lakers show. And I like uh. I, I I had to climb over her to get to you. <laughs> well, that's a first. Usually, it's the other way around. Well. And I was going to give you a break. I wasn't going to give you like, ah, oh, you know, now you got a podcast to come on. Uh, but then I heard you, I heard you on Rosillo. I heard you with Jeff Perlman and you were, you were out there with your sobriety, which I thought was super cool. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, it's an important part of my story. You know, it's a, uh, it's a part, it's actually an important part of the Showtime story because it got me to there. You mentioned your story. It's not hard to find stuff about you as a screenwriter back to the animated stuff, moving forward to winning time. What about before then? Where, where, where did you grow up? You were born. I saw you were born in New York, but you talk about being raised in California. Yeah, I was born in Queens, and we moved when I was about two. Um, and my parents were, my, my dad ended up being a professor, so he was, and they were young, so they were in college, so every time they got a new degree or a new job, we moved. We moved a bunch of times. By the time I was five, and ended up in LA around there. All right. So you grew up in California. When did you take, if you remember, when you took your first drink? Well, you know, I, I was I'm Jewish. My parents would take us to Passover, so I think my first probably drink was like the wine at the Passover seder's, which was probably like six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. 
Um, the first time I like drank, like for real, was probably eleven. Okay, so that that's pretty early. So, how, what did that? Uh, yeah. What's that scenario look like? Well, eighties. I think we were all a little bit more raised by wolves than kids are today, or even you know, ten years later. Um, just a lot of unsupervised time, and I think the first time I drank was like you know, breaking into my dad's liquor cabinet or whatever and, and, and helping myself and nothing happened. And, uh, I, you know, like a night or two, maybe it was much of a week later, uh, we ended up drinking around the pool uh, in the hot tub in Southern Comfort. And like the last thing I remembered was this bottle kind of spinning around the hot tub empty. <laughs> And I woke up in the, the bathtub. My dad had come and get me, gotten me and carried me home. I puked all over the place and, you know, talked about all sorts of things I probably did not want my father to know about, like times I played sick to miss school. And, you know, I, I woke up and I heard him telling somebody about it on the phone. And I just, you know, the shame. Yeah, I was about to think of that as the word that, that, that hit me between the eyes. Like at that age, you're 11 years old, and the shame is already – it's already kind of being poured on. Yeah, it was all like cemented right there. And, you know, I'm never going to do that again. And I'm not sure how long that lasted, but it wasn't that long um, before I was, you know, doing it again. And people tell me, you know, oh, it's hard alcohol. Hard alcohol has a kick. So I tried to watch out for that. So it's already like trying to control and enjoy my drinking since the age of 11. Was there any like uh, were your friends like kind of uh, outlaws or did you did you gravitate to that kind of crowd? Yeah, uh, yes. Um, you know, my friends, we were all little kids, weren't you know? Obviously, outlaws became that around eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, and and, and so I sort of went with them, and uh, and I then I had sort of like always like two groups of friends. So it was like my my friends were like the good kids who played sports. And with my friends that, you know, that sort of like to live a little bit darker like I did. And uh, I just kind of bounced back and forth between the two groups. Um, in high school, I'm more settled in the, the jock, you know, kind of crowd and didn't really get back uh, until college. And I started to drink again really hard. What was it like? Like, were you drinking during the, during the week in high school? And and the question I have for you, what was it? What was it doing for you? Not during high school, but like, uh, you know, like I said, during junior high, yes, we would, my, you know, we would steal our parents' weed, and and I didn't even really like to smoke weed, but we did it. I, I think it just made me, you know, it was a way that I could be cooler than the other kids. Like I had access and. I, I knew how to do it, and you know, so I, I think it was like just a way to sort of be popular um, and have friends, and and that's sort of what I think it did for me more than anything at that age. It wasn't at that age so much about escaping; it was more like just trying to be cool. Yeah, that was a double edged sword for me growing up. I grew up like I like I told you outside of Philly, and I played sports. I liked the way that alcohol made me feel, and I liked how it made mm -hmm. me fit in. It kind of gave me, like you said, access, or it gave me access to this popular crowd. And I was like, why wouldn't I continue to use this tool for the rest of my life? Yeah, I mean that too. I guess it was you know I, I recall like it was definitely you know lowers your inhibitions and uh, 
uh, allows you to be more outgoing. And, and, you know, if you act like an idiot the next day, I was drunk. And, uh, yeah, so I guess it did do that for me as well. When you got into to high school and, uh, you know, you mentioned you're drinking once in a while on weekends, what's it like, like, as you're getting ready to go to college, what kind of drugs are you doing? Well, I, from an early age, I, you know, I, I read books like Bright Lights, Big City, and Lesson Zero when I was like 11 and 12. I, I, I never read the book, but, but the Michael J. Yeah. Fox movie. I loved it. Yeah. I think they tried to steer away from showing him doing drugs in the movie, but in the book, it's the main character's coke, coke addict. And, uh, and those were kind of cautionary tales where I'm like, don't do this. And I read them and I was like, that's the way that I want to live. That's, that's the handbook for living right there. Especially Lesson Zero, like these kids just didn't seem to feel anything. You know, I felt everything. I was very sensitive. And these kids seemed to like have no, nothing would affect them. They, 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 and I was like, that's the way I want to be. I don't want to feel anything. Um, I don't know if it was because my parents, my parents, my mom, for example, was a psychologist. My dad was a professor. So it was always like, how do you feel? Like it was always like that kind of an emotionally intrusive quality. And I just didn't want to feel anything. Like I don't want, I'm fine. Just leave me alone. I'm okay. Like, and, and, and so I looked at those kids and I was like, that's how I like to feel. It's it's weird, dude. I have the same right. alcoholic brain you do, probably right. And uh, that that mm-hmm. those movies, you know, that the the doors, uh, all, all that mm-hmm. stuff was like super alluring. The drug culture, whether you mm-hmm. got it gritty or whether you cleaned it up, like the less than zero kids. Either way, I was I was all in. And at the time, you know, I think my mom was like, "Dude, what's going on with this guy? Like, I'm finding pot in his room, and he's watching the doors nonstop, and he's listening to the Grateful Dead, and he's like, I was a 17 year old, and it." just kind of didn't make a, a ton of sense on the outside. But for me, it was, it was a perfect storm. Right. And you know, two things, first of all, like all of the, those books would end with like, and then I stopped doing cocaine and I walked away and never did it again. So the, the mythology is like, Oh, if it gets too much to handle, I'll just stop. And you know, that it'll be that easy. I'll just walk away from it. And yeah, I mean, I had the, the, you know, my parents were professors. They both had PhDs. My stepdad had a PhD. My stepmom, my both of my stepsisters or whatever. And I was getting like D's and F's. I had like a two point three when I graduated from high school. Like it just didn't make any sense. Were they, were they disappointed? And, yeah, I think so. It was kind of especially the you know my freshman year when I was really not a good kid. I was I was you know in the warmth, I was really like flunking out and uh, just didn't care. I don't know why I just didn't care. I didn't want to do homework. I just wanted to hang out with my friends. You know, I was this kid who a few years before was like, I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to be president of the United States. And it was just the only thing that mattered to me was my friends and, 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 and getting drunk and getting high. When you mentioned, you've talked about your ADD. I've just heard you, you share mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, was that where you, did you, were you medicated as a kid and were you abusing those drugs or did they help? No, I mean, it was the eighties. We didn't have that. Yeah. You know, it was just, you were hyperactive and it was sort of demonized and we didn't get to be like, Oh, I, you know, oh my God, if I could have like gotten, you know, diagnosed, you know, socially acceptable and gotten free speed, I would have been <laughs> elated. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't, didn't know what that was. You know, I think I'm slightly dyslexic too. I can't spell, you know, to this day I'm a writer, but I can't spell. 
Um, and uh, yes, it was very hard for me to sit down and focus and do homework. It felt like a hot stove. Like I really did not want to do it. And uh, uh, the first time I got good grades is when I sort of, you know, was able to find cocaine in, in high school. So you started to do, you, okay, so you did, you start doing some, some coke in high school and you notice yeah, it's kind of, like, this, oh, I can study. Yeah. <laughs> we always run out though. I like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But yeah, it was like the first time I was like, wow, I can, I like studying now. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's also this mythology of like, well, more so for writers. I don't know if it's. I think I believed it then too that like drugs and and sort of intellectual work went together, so you could access the best parts of your mind or some shit like that. And, and I was going to so ask was, you that was, if if you felt like the yeah. drugs made you more creative. I I wasn't really creative at that point in my life as a high school kid. I wasn't really thinking about you know doing TV and movies or being a writer. I was going to go to law school if I could. Um, so, but yeah, I thought it was like going to help me do homework and stuff, and it did. So you went to, where'd you go to college? I, know, I think you went somewhere in D.C. I've, I've heard you say you were on the debate no, team. No, I started at Arizona State. Okay. I was on the debate team there. You, you don't get a lot of, you know, college choices when you're <laughs> hovering around 50% of your high school class. Um, and then when I got to college, all of a sudden I was a really good student. You know, I, well, I, was, I was, you know partially in defiance of like, I wanted to show my dad that oh, he was the, the problem. You know, as soon as I got out of the house, my grades were good. So it must be him. And partially because I got around, you know, I was on the debate team at a big school where you could easily get lost. So that was like my, my people and they were all really good students. So I wanted to be a really good student. And I learned how to study and did that. And then I went to USC and went to USC for film school. And, uh, um, yeah, so I, I ended up actually becoming a really good student. Were you was that enhanced at all by drugs, or were you literally on your own accord, just busting your ass, getting good grades? You know, I, at college I was a drinker. I was a heavy drinker, um, and there was a lot of drinking and drugs in the in, in the debate culture. Strangely enough, um, but uh, I, I didn't have access to a lot of drugs. I experimented with things. You know, I did acid for the first time, but. Well, it was mostly just that was that was that was drinking a lot. When did you start to feel like okay, this is an issue, or did you for a while? I mean, for myself, I kind of knew. Hey, I thought this stuff was magic because it was enabling me mm -hmm. to do things I would lie to people. I, I would say, oh, I, I made out with that girl, and then I would drink, and I mm -hmm. would have the courage to talk to that girl. Uh, and yeah, that was a big thing for me. But I knew it was a Even problem. In college, I think, I think because you didn't always have to wake up the next morning, like it, it didn't. It wasn't a it wasn't a problem. Like I, you know, I, I could drink all night and then get you know. One time I got really drunk and I woke up the next day and, and at, this is during a debate tournament. I had like the best tournament of my life. And so I was like, oh, this works for that too. <laughs> you wake up and you don't like really care and you're still a little bit drunk and that helps in some ways. It wasn't until I got out of college and tried to work and then you know. Um, oversleeping things that I have to be at and really want to be at, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going out for a couple of drinks with people that I work with and drastically overshooting the mark and, and, uh, and then have to live with that shame around, you know, coworkers. What did you do um, at a college? 
Uh, well, I was, like I said, I was going to go to law school in the summer before my senior year. I interned um, at, at Nickelodeon in Orlando. And uh, uh, I, I was sort of just was like, this is way better. I want to do this. And so right after college, I went to Orlando and started working um, at Nickelodeon. And, uh, and did that, you know, I worked there on TV, VH1, Universal for two or three years and then kind of was like, I don't really know anything. So I decided that's when I decided to go to grad school and went to film school. I came back went to film school at USC um, and took it from there. It's funny. I got, I got a friend. I saw your credit, um, your name mm-hmm. as a credit for the, uh, the show Taina and a girl that I anchored with down here. Yeah. I'm in Texas. A girl that I anchored with down here. Thanks you. Um, because people know how to say that name. Her name's Taina and nobody, nobody gets that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nobody gets that shit. Right. Yeah. I think that was right after graduate school. So after that, I went back again into the Nickelodeon world and, and I worked on, I worked on Taina and I worked on, uh, you know, before that, I'd worked on like all that and Keenan and Kel and Guts and all those great sort of '90s kids staples. Eddie McDowd um, and the award shows, the kid, kids help and Kids Choice and Big Help and things like that. Now, is your ego so, getting big as you have the success, or are, are you partying a lot? Because this is pretty good for a young guy. Yeah, I mean, yes. When I was, you know, 22, 23 years old, I'm writing stuff that's on TV. Even, you know, it's just kid stuff. Yeah, my ego is pretty big. And, and um, then when I went back to graduate school, 24, 25, I was like, you know, I was the only person who had actually like done stuff, for, you know, written professionally. And so I thought a lot of myself, yeah, I was probably insufferable. Um, <laughs> and that's in grad school is when, when I came back to LA and I started living in Hollywood. That's when I really got started getting into drugs. You know, then I had ready access to cocaine, and 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 from there it just took off. As a writer, I ended up getting sober. Is is a, as a writer? Did you were, was any of your writing, and now you're creative? Was any of it fueled by drugs? Because early on, no, you, not, none of it. So you're sober when you're writing. Yeah, sometimes I would drink and write, and then you know later when you're doing coke, yeah, you're working high. But like then it was like I would stare at one page and work on that one page all night. Yeah. I couldn't really focus or do anything. Like it didn't, it was not, I know a lot of people are like, Oh, they had these big careers on drugs, but that was not my story. I couldn't be a professional on drugs. And, 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 and when I was doing drugs and drinking, like I couldn't show up. And, no, I was really bad at my job. And then all the things that go along with alcoholism, you know, the, the grandiosity and the, the, the sort of king baby behavior made me like a really not a good person to have around, you know, on your staff. And uh, and just no, I was like completely repugnant as a as a professional before I got sober, both in the quality of my work probably and and in the way that the quality of the person that I was to, to have on a team. Well, clearly you're very good at your job though, because you kept working. And we'll get, we're about to get to like when you when you bottom out. Because I'm curious about that. But I want to mm-hmm. ask you what your what were your relationships like with females? Mine were a disaster. I mean, I, I held, yeah, I, no, I kept same. the they hostages, were... and it was just a nightmare. But what was what was your experience with that? Same. I mean, I I had a bunch of like three year relationships in a row until I got sober, and uh, they were you know caustic. They were inflammatory there were you know a lot of crazy fighting and bad behavior and, and and then you get back together and 
you know, I, I, I don't know that I ever dated anybody that drank as much as me, but I definitely dated people that were, you know, that party and, uh, and some great people, you know, that I, some of them still friends with and, and I just couldn't do anything like functional. And so that was, that was part of it. And yeah. Not, not good in relationships. When did you start? Always in one, but yeah, not fun to be in one way. <laughs> when did you start to realize that this was something that you had you had to stop? Whether were you the type of person that just completely crashed and bottomed out, or did you think, okay, I'm going to stop in October, you know, and it's September fifteenth? Yeah, there were stop signs along the way, and you know, any I guess if anybody that's, that's gotten involved with cocaine will attest that you know brings you to your knees faster which i'm grateful for because maybe i could have drank for another 10 20 years if i just did that um i wouldn't have had such low lows you know such you know people talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization those mornings of just waking up and hating myself i think were a lot lower because of the drug use and so yeah it was like okay i need to stop doing this and then you know, started to check out some of the 12 step programs. And um, so did you start to get, kind of check in on, on that, like the 12 step life and, but, but you didn't stop right away. Yeah. Right around, I guess the turn of the century around 2099 around there, I started, you know, checking out 12 step programs. Uh, the idea of abstinence did not really appeal to me. But, <laughs> uh, and I, neither did the programs. I thought they were silly. And so I, you know, I'd stay sober for 20, 30, 60 days or whatever. And then, go back and meanwhile like the things that people are talking about in those you know those communities are uh, i'm living in now so the always worse never better the periods of brief recovery followed by even worse relapse you know the things that these stories i would hear um, i'm walking down that road and it all just seems inevitable and and i'm fitting it to a T. So fortunately I was around them enough to hear the things. And now I'm seeing that I'm now I'm seeing the pattern. Yeah. I know about it. And, uh, and that just sort of, you know, I did that for about a year and a half where things just got worse and worse. And then finally, um, it just, you know, it hit me. I was like in a closet in Las Vegas and up all night and crying and, and, you know, a real moment of clarity. Like it was just like, oh my god, I'm not a horrible person. I'm an alcoholic, and and I am horrible when I drink. And that was like the world sort of slowed with that realization. And then the next thought was like, well, now that I get it, I have a responsibility to not drink because I understand what that does. And so what do you do? What's your first, what's your first action? You know, this is a program of action. We say, what's the first action you take? You're in Vegas, you're in a closet, you're broken down. Yeah. I called my therapist like six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And, uh, I remember her reading, uh, a passage from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. And, and, uh, you know, it was, that was the surrender. And then I went to rehab. I went to, it's placed on the west side of LA, um, and you know that was also surrender. That was like, okay, I'm going to go away for 30 days. Everybody's going to know about it, which I was really worried about. Like, yeah. Oh my God, what are people going to think? Um, and uh, no phone, you know, no cell phone, no car. You're not leaving. 
you're going to do what we say. <laughs> you're going to go to groups at seven in the morning or whatever. And, and, and I just, I don't, I, you know, I fought and resisted some of the rules, but I ultimately dove into it. It's funny. I was, yeah. I was reading, my buddy gave me, um, a pair of new glasses, you know, and, uh, uh-huh. I, he gave it to me in 2019. I'm finally starting to get into it now. And the thing that it says early in the book, Chuck C, you know, 12 step guy is sober for a very long time talks about, I'd lost everything but my ego, you know? And like, yeah. like when you, when you break down and I remember going to, to, to rehab, that was my story too. And I remember showing up and telling the woman, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know we're only allowed to go to the gym three days a week, but if I'm going to be sober, it's important that I go five. And she was like, ah, no, right. no, dude, right. you're going with everybody else. That was my first realization, Jim. I was like, oh boy. Like this is, this is the real deal, you know, cause people have told yeah. me, Hey, you're going to be able to do whatever you want. It, people told me anything as long as I would say, okay, I'll do it. Um, right. but that's the yeah, part of exactly. surrendering, like you said. Yeah. And you know, I, you know, I, every day I get to this place where I was like, if I leave tonight, I'm going to be drunk by midnight. You know what I mean? Like I had that realization over and over again, like I'm not going to click. And then I, I was able to go see that therapist and she was the one that said, you, know, you need to pray. You need to was she a 12-step person question. too? Did she have experience with that or did she just know yeah, what, what your deal did. was? Okay. No, she had, she had long-term sobriety, 10 years, 11 years or something. And, and I did. I tried it. And she said, I, I argued with her. I did the whole thing about the wave and the ocean. You know, I was like, well, I think the wave is kind of screwed because the wave can't get out of the ocean and the wave can't go to the movies. And the wave can't make a place. She's like, all right, just except that everything I say is, is bullshit and then do it anyway. And, and, and for some reason that made sense to me. So I did. And that worked. I the obsession was lifted and, uh, you know, I've been very vigilant that it, to make sure that it doesn't come back. I, I don't know if I just got lucky, beginners luck or whatever, but it really worked for me. Um, and I never want to be under that obsession again. What did you do when you yeah. got out of treatment? Like what, what, what was your move? Did you do like a, a lot of meetings yeah. or yeah fortunately nobody would hire me i was on a <laughs> for the first six months and uh yeah i went to 12 meetings you know two three a day and, and made it my life um and then you know i went I, in my story that I, I went super you know i went broke i didn't have any money i was overdrawn my checking account was i had I had a change dish, but I had used all the quarters and the dimes and the nickels. And all I had was like $2 and 57 cents and pennies. And I was looking at the dog going, you know, one of us isn't going to eat today, buddy. And it might be you. Uh, and, uh, I went to the beach. I used to take my, you know, I started getting up early. I took my dog to the beach six o'clock in the morning, played fetch with him. And I, I hit my knees on the beach and I, you know, I prayed. I know we're not supposed to pray, you know, they tell you don't pray for results or specific things, but I, I was like, God, just let me get in the game. You know, just give me a chance to demonstrate, you know, to, to get it, you know, to, to try to get, make my dreams come true. Just give me an opportunity. Um, and I, I, I had this thought, you know, not literally the voice of God, but like this sort of small, still voice inside me said baseball cards. And, uh, <laughs> No, baseball what? cards meant something to me because I had every baseball card from like 1976 to 1990. Yeah. And it was like the one thing I was never going to sell because 
you know, my dad went to college and his parents sold his and they would have been working. You always hear those horror stories, right? Yeah. 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 They threw away the original Mickey Mouse or whatever. (laughs) And so I I was like, that's it. I'll sell my baseball cards. The one thing I would never sell and demonstrate my willingness to the universe to make dreams come true, blah, blah, blah. And I went into the garage and I started getting the cards out to organize them to take them down to sell them. And at the bottom of this box of baseball cards was an envelope and wedged in between two sets. And I, I took it out and it was a tax return a check from 1996 that I had never opened I remember getting. And it was like $360 or something like that. And and then I had gotten a sober job and that check, I deposited the check and it stayed in my account till the day after I got my first sober paycheck. And then the bank kicked it out for being nine, more than 90 days old. So it literally just lasted me that bridged from like you were completely out of money to you're going to get a check. And, and, and I remember I ran down and, and found my, my 12-step sponsor at a meeting and I told him that and he said, well, kid, you know, sometimes coincidence is God's way staying anonymous. And, and, and he didn't make that up, but I thought it was some real Yoda-ish advice and it just kind of... Wait, what did he say mind. again? I lost for a sec. What did he say? He said, uh, coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. Huh. And uh, I've had, you know, moments like that on several occasions in my sobriety and then still... When things aren't going my way, I go, there's no God. I don't believe in that stuff. Things don't work out for me. If there is a God, he hates me. You know, I, I just go right back to that, that sort of thinking. Even though time and time again, the universe has caught me and, 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 and I've been, you know, I've had these sort of miraculous moments. We'll get back to this conversation in a second. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds miraculous. That story is unbelievable, and I appreciate you so much sharing that. You obviously, you know, you you get sober, but you you go back into working. You you mentioned six months later. How do you reintegrate? Because writing is hard. You know, like anybody you talk to that's a writer will say, writing seems to keep you humble. You know, it just does. Yeah. Uh, and and how yeah. did yeah? How did you start doing that All again? All I did for the next five, three, three, four, five years was work. I was just determined that I was going to make it. And uh, so for two of those years, I was not, I was really struggling. And it was like my dad at one point said, you know, do you think maybe it's time to try to find something else to do? And, uh, you know, I was, I got to another place of being broke, being behind on rent, you know, living on unemployment. and, and Which happens in sobriety. Uh, like it's not all unicorns and rainbows, yeah. you know, like you this go through your two shit. years, two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. This is at least two and a half years sober. And, uh, I was super depressed because I had been promised a job on this Nickelodeon show called Zoe 101 starring Jamie Lynn Spears, Brittany's little sister. Yeah. And at the last minute I didn't get the job. And so I was, you know, as down as I'd ever been. And I got, instead I got, I did get a job. I got a job doing a pilot at Spike TV. I think it paid $2,500 for a 30 minute pilot, which is not a lot. Um, but I was just like, I'm going to kill this thing. And I'm going to, you know, prove, you know, that I can do it. And, and, uh, I got really lucky The pilot, John Leguizamo ended up doing the pilot and then we clicked. And then he was doing this animated movie at Fox where he played his flock and I was like, Hey, would you come in and work on my character? And once I got in, I was the ice age movies. And then when I got in on that, I was like, I will, ne- you'll never get rid of me. I will <laughs> never leave. And I just worked round the clock. So from like 
that took me to like year five or no, I think year four was the end of ice age two. And at that point I had done nothing but work for the first four years of sobriety. And that last year, the year that I was on ice age two, I didn't, you know, I didn't date for a year. Just because you were obsessed with, well, work was going so well, you almost didn't want to mess with it. Cause ice age, yeah, it clearly takes off. Right. There I am. I'm in the, you know, like I'm, I'm 31, 32. I'm writing a hundred million dollar movie, which was my dream. And so all I did was work. But I, you know, that was in White Plains, New York. I moved to White Plains and, and for a minute I didn't go to meetings because I'm too busy. Yeah. And, and, and I started to lose my mind and I became cognizant of the fact I was going to blow this chance. And so as much as I didn't want to do it, I found a new 12 step community in White Plains and got really active in that. And that, that got me through. Yeah, that's a big deal. Like when you can move somewhere, like I've moved around a little in sobriety mm-hmm. and you can break through and get that new group going. That's like that muscle mm-hmm. memory where it's like, okay, I have smart feet now. I can go to this group in White Plains. I know people. And it's sometimes it's it's hard to to break through. You know, you got to, it's again, mm-hmm. like a program of action. You got to get your ass there. And then when you do, you become reconnected and you're moving further away from a drink again and not closer to one. Exactly. And, and those people kept me grounded and humble. Which is important. So your career, and then I kind of burned out. Okay, good. So you, <laughs> and you, I was like, oh God. I was like, God, I didn't want to work that hard anymore. Uh, and then I started just, you know, then I had a career in talking animal movies, and people were like, okay, you're just going to write family movies, and uh, and I sort of had, you know, several years where all I did was take the highest paying job I could find and or the most prestigious, and. I just kind of ruined myself as an asset. Nothing was getting made. I was, you know, I was ruining my career. And how again, so? Like, you were just I becoming like a t- like typecast as a writer. Well, the longer you go with things going get, not getting made, and you're writing these screenplays, and they're like, you know, you don't go to that person to write a screenplay if you know that everything that they write doesn't get made. Okay. Right. So you become less and less valuable as a writer longer that goes along and that's what I was doing to myself and, and I hit sort of an emotional bottom uh, around 2013 um, I was in a relationship with somebody who was in a relationship <laughs> for like three years um, and it you know she moved she moved to Texas so she might be one of your, your listeners nowadays okay. Um and so I, I bottomed out on that and, uh, you know, so personally and professionally, I, I was really, really depressed and a friend of mine in the program and what, you know, a 12 step program took me to, was like, he was British. He's like, Jim, follow me, do what I'm doing. And so I started getting, I really got into meditation through him because I was so down, you know, and I was willing to try anything. And, uh, Early on in meditation, I had this kind of realization that was, it was twofold. It was like, one, you need to stop doing stuff that you like and only do stuff that you love. Because when I like something that I'm writing, it is a, it's really hard. Like, it's, it's anxiety-provoking. It's depression-riddled. I feel horrible about it. I hate doing it. I, I don't do a good job. I don't think I'm very good at it. And it's a little bit torturous, but if you love something, at least for me, then it is just enough fuel to get you through all the hard stuff that you're going to go through when you're writing something. And, 
the second thought was you got to stop trying to do things that you think other people would want to see and write the thing that you would want to watch. And uh, literally the next day I was listening to sports radio out here because I'm that kind of fan. I was listening to ESPN radio, Max Kellerman and Marcellus Wiley. And they had Jeff Perlman on and he was talking about his new book that was coming out. Showtime. And so I went to book soup nine o'clock in the morning when the book came out, I think the next day I was there when the doors open, I bought Jeff's book. I read it by like 11 or 12 <laughs> and I called my agent and I was like, I want to do this as a series. And he said, Jim, this is the thing that's going to be written on your gravestone. And, uh, that was 2014. And so how do you get this thing going? I mean, because here you are, you're an, you're an animation guy or, or talking, you know, whatever, right. animal guy. And then so talking now, animals, yeah. you know, you're going to do something that's honestly never been done before. I mean, it's so hard, I would imagine, to get, and, and something that a lot of people want to see, but it's just like the logistics, it breaks my brain to think about how you would make a show with the detail that yeah, winning, winning time has. Yeah, people are like, you're crazy. Yeah. Because they're like, you're never going to get permission from the league. Nobody, no network will touch this because of the league. And it's never been done before. Is it a mini series? What is it? And and you know, I was seeing like Friday Night Lights with the Lakers in the '80s, and uh, I flew across country. I got a meeting with Jeff Coleman, who's awesome. Had, Everything he has is um, I, I just love the guy. His his books are unbelievable. If I don't read them, I listen to him, and he's just a, he's got that sports junkie uh, that's so authentic. His and his work, he does hard work i mean the interviews he does that go into mm -hmm. these books that he makes dude it's like he's talking to like he's just walking up to jr Ryder's house and knocking on his door yes <laughs> yeah. like that's a good way to get killed who <laughs> you would think he overflowed he was just he overflowed spencer haywood's toilet um, <laughs> yeah uh yeah jeff is an amazing writer and his book read like a tv treatment because it would introduce the characters and go back and sort of explain who they were where they came from and he's just, he's an amazing writer. And, and also the kind of person that like makes me feel like a better person because he considers me a friend. Yeah. Like he's just that good of a dude. Fortunately, he had had several things options by then and nothing had ever happened with him. And so he wasn't going to come down to New York. He made me go up to New Rochelle. <laughs> I went up to New Rochelle on Easter Sunday. I brought him, you know, a block of Baker's chocolate, a bottle of non-alcoholic wine, because neither of us drank. And a tomato, and brought a tomato, and and I told him what I wanted to do, and because nothing had ever worked out with his books being optioned before, he was kind of like, yeah, whatever, take your shot. <laughs> and and he said, when the door closed behind me, him and his wife turned to each other. They were like, nothing's ever going to come out of that. And then it bounced around a lot. I had producers attached. I had a lot of no's. I like to say nobody thought this was a great idea. Until Kevin Messick and Adam McKay thought this was a great idea. Yeah. And everybody thought it was a great idea. Um, and I think it was two years of it bouncing around that way. Then Adam came out with the big short and I was like, I want that. That's the way I want to do it. Um, and I had known Kevin from an animated project that we worked on and he took the meeting. God bless him. Yeah. And, uh, and got them to do the book. But that's been an eight year process from you know sunday tomorrow's the the finale of season one yeah it was april of 2014 when i read the book and you guys got renewed too i mean so there'll be more yeah um yeah we're doing that right now and we're gearing up to start again 
What I've is been the, in that writer's room for three years straight. I know. You've, I want to ask you about a writer's room. I have no idea what that's like. <laughs> writing alone is hard enough, I would imagine. What's it like as a sober guy to walk into a, a writer's room? That's a brand new experience, right? And like, it's almost like I would imagine you might lean on your experience walking into an AA meeting that you don't want to go to or you've never been to before. I mean, what is the, what is that like, and how do you how do you how do you move through that experience? Yeah, that would have been a smart way to look at it. I just didn't. I had never been in a writer's room before, and it was really hard for me. I'd never worked with other people, and I worked primarily with two or three, four, primarily with three or four other writers. Um, but two who have a lot of experience: the showrunner Max Bornstein, yeah, uh, my co-creator, and this guy Ronnie Barnes, too. Is just uh, kind of a freak because he's a he's like he's hilarious. He's like Chris Rock's main writer, but also he's like got these incredible drama chops and understands character on a perspective I haven't really been around before. He, he plays the guard kind of like, at the forum, right? He does. Maurice, yeah. Yes, okay. He's yeah. Security guard. So that's like being like in sports terms. That's like being a power lifter who can deadlift a thousand pounds, but also can win the Olympic hundred meters. Yeah. It's just a combination you don't see a lot the drama and comedy chops coming together in that kind of way. And, and Max is just brilliant. And she, so it was very intimidating for me. And it was a lot of like the first year of it just felt horrible. It was really hard every day. I just felt terrible. Just because why? Uh, cause, cause that's how we are or just were, were you doing good work and you were just crushing yourself? I don't know. Part of it was the unfamiliarity of it. Part of it was, I thought it, you know, making the shift from, family movies to drama. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. Uh, I would never been in a writer's room and that's a skill onto itself that I didn't have. And, uh, and I, you know, I was sort of like thrown in with, with, uh, with, with Michael Jordan and LeBron James Yeah, and, and, and didn't feel up to it. And, 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 you know, God bless them. They stayed with me and they, they educated me. And, uh, and then at some point it was like, oh yeah, I could do this. You, did you, you did you lean on people like in, in meetings and stuff and, and, and in sobriety to kind of get you through all, all this stuff? Because, you know, it seems like an inspired move. What, you know, your fact that you make the jump, you go to Jeff's house, you pitch the show, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's like, you know, you look at your, what your resume is so far and it's like, where did this guy get the balls? But it's not the balls really. It's just. You were on fire, I guess, in one way or the other. Like the, you mentioned, it spawn, the spawn was it. that meditation almost. Yeah, I look back at it, and I didn't, it didn't occur to me going through it. But looking back at it, I was like, wow, that was really audacious. Like, what made me think I could do that? <laughs> you know, my only credit, really, my biggest credit was I saved the meltdown. It doesn't really speak to someone being able to do an, an HBO prestige drama series. It just didn't occur to me. It didn't enter my mind that it couldn't be done or wouldn't be done. I don't know why. I never had that with anything else. It was like, this is going to happen. This is supposed to happen. This is, you know, this is great. And I, I, the only thing I can tell people when they're going through something like that or starting to try to do something like that is if you have an idea and you think it's a great idea, it's probably a great idea. And you should keep at it until you find the right people that also think it's a great idea. It's clear that you're dialed, dialed in with, re, with recovery. That's why when I heard you talking to Ryan Rosillo about wintertime, mm-hmm. I was like, damn, this guy's a humble. He's, he's, he's cool. He obviously has like, you know, he's connected. How much did you lean did on? Did I talk about recovery? I don't remember. You that. mentioned, like, well, you, you guys talked about Jerry West and you said that you'd had your struggles, uh, struggles with depression yeah. and addiction. And, and for me, somebody yeah. who knows 
who just knows what that sounds like. It was very clear yeah. you were you were comfortable in your own skin, and you you know you didn't hit anybody over the head with it. But I was like, oh wow, this is cool. He's not right. ashamed of it. And uh, I'm curious as to how you like how much did did you know your 12 step work really play into this this uh, this screenplay because it's a deep show. I mean, it lets you know that these guys who you think and women who have it all are just like us. It's like, you know, you hear like Superman rides the bus, dude. Like it really makes you feel yeah. like these guys are just, and it makes you want to live in the present and, and understand like whatever you put out there and you think that's your, your carrot or your shiny diamond, like you better just enjoy now and enjoy the process because when you get there, you might be a nut like these guys. Well, and that's the show, really. That's to me what winning time speaks to is this kind of ephemeral, not real thing that's out there someday that will fix me. You know, if I can just get to it, and if you do get to it, it's like five minutes long, past, and then you need something bigger and better, right? So, I had had that experience, you know, with the Ice Age movies. I remember I, with that, I, 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 I bought a car while I was working on them, and I remember I called like Lizanne crying I was like you did this for me and then like five minutes later it was just something I had yeah you know what I mean and I I, I it's like everything since then anytime I've had any bit of success it was like things I thought were going to fix me five minutes after I after they they were accomplished didn't and and you know ultimately time and time again I had to learn that it's an inside job is is it interesting to be somebody working in Hollywood? I'll let you get out of here in a couple of minutes, but is, I got a couple more things for you. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, um, okay. This is a blast. Is it interesting to be somebody in Hollywood that has a code? For instance, like you, you know, because you hear, you know, Hollywood, the waters can get can get murky, and here you are, this honest guy that's kind of living um, this twelve step way. Have you have you? What's your experience been like with that? Well, that was part of the thing that came into this project too. Is like I only wanted. I was like, that was in the realization that I, just, I need to start just surrounding myself with people that I know are good people, because I'd had a lot of experiences with people that weren't. And 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 you know, as a sort of people pleaser, I'd always get into and being like, oh, they're gonna like me. Of course, everybody does. And then you know, ended up being sort of beaten down, you know, and very upset and bitter by the way that I got treated by people that everybody said, that's a bad person. You should not work with them. Uh, and so part of this was like, I'm going to surround myself with friends and deal with people who are good people. And, and that's been very helpful in this project. I mean, and Jeff, it was an accident, but it was a prime example of that because he's, you know, such a good person, even though he's not sober has a lot of experience with sobriety and people in his life and stuff like that and sort of speaks the language as well and and you know i i just celebrated 20 years in october wow and uh and jeff came to my 20-year party and uh and and he brought me a gift and I, uh, the next morning i didn't get to open it until the next morning it was uh, a copy of his book because my book had been stolen in mexico and uh, and a, a, a tomato, a block of Baker's chocolate, and a bottle of non-alcoholic wine. And I opened it up, and I saw that I just like lost it. I started, you know, the tears just came out, and, and, and I just thought, wow, what a profound, like, full circle moment that whole thing was. I mean, that, that's amazing, and and your ability to have, yeah. you know, at that twenty, that twenty years, I, you know, you what is your sobriety date? So I guess it's October. That was when you were in Vegas, October. October 20th, 2001. It was right after September 11th. 
Okay, so and when do you meet uh, your, your, your wife now, Courtney? My wife, Courtney, was the speaker at a meeting, a 12-step meeting uh, uh, in 2017. Okay. And I went up and talked to her. Afterwards, it was one of the most uncomfortable, awkward meetings <laughs> I'd ever had. And same as Jeff, I like walked away from it like that. Ah, nothing's ever going to happen with that because that was so awkward. And uh, I stalked her on social media. I like to say when she's around that she chased me down like one of those lions on the savannah with like a, you know, the gazelle is like sipping water by the lake and the lion comes and jumps and pounces. But the truth is I sort of stalked her on social media. <laughs> and then I saw that we had a mutual friend and went through them. And she being a reporter had like, I, he said it was just like hours of questions before she, you know, agreed to like exchange phone numbers. <laughs> and and then when she showed up on our first date, she showed up with a background check. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was like I remember the first that first conversation being like, "Oh my god, I will never be able to lie to this person." Yeah. Which is kind of a relief. It's like, well, I'll take that off the table. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm just going to have to be truthful from now on. And, and, and yeah, because she's, she's got that reporter spidey sense and she'll, she'll, she'll catch me. It's so funny because it's like we, we have, we're the worst predictors of the future. At least I am. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm the worst mm-hmm. like assessor of how something went usually. Oh, it went great or it went terrible. You know, it's like, it's either mm-hmm. I'm, you know, the most important person in the room or the least important, uh, important. Totally. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's tough to find that one thing I want to ask you, the show's kicking ass, but people are talking about it, you no, know, like, you. like, mm-hmm. like Bob, Bob Ryan, in my opinion, the show's not for you, Bob, but whatever. So Bob is, you know, <laughs> I mean, seriously, you're not, you're not the target demo dude. So whatever. But, um, he, how do you, how are you dealing with some of these people that are being vocal about the criticism? Uh, which to me means it's such a good show. But how do you, how are you handling that? Yeah, it's an abstraction. You know, it's like really not in my day-to-day life. I'm busy working at this show and another show. So I'm basically working two full-time plus jobs right now. It's been the hardest work period of my life. And so there's fortunately not a lot of time for me to sit down and get spun. Yeah. About things that people are saying. I did go through that on, on Ice Age movies, like reading reviews and wanting to go fly places and yell at people. <laughs> and this, I, I just sort of haven't really had the chance. And, um, and I lean on, you know, my friends that, that have recovery and, and, and I, you know, I do, uh, I'm in therapy and stuff like that. So um, it hasn't just, I don't know why it hasn't really spun me out. And the first time it happened was sort of when they asked, magic a question and he was like I'm not looking forward to it and like you know I'm the kid that like my best day of my life was like if my dad drove us up to 405 and I started to see the forum come into view and realize where we were going you know I met I, I stood online at Westminster Mall for two and a half hours to get magic's autograph when I was six it's, it's on my desk still and so magic Johnson that's my hero you know what i mean like i'm the kid that would wait outside the forum for them to come out and get more autographs and and, and so my first take on it was just like oh my god magic Johnson's talking about it. <laughs> that's so cool like you know he knows what we're doing and, and 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 so there's that excitement level with it too and and with all these people you know so they become that max and i both having grown up here like come at it from that perspective of these are our heroes 
and 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 I, a lot of love goes into it. And I, I, you know, maybe it takes a few episodes to get to that, or I don't know. Um, but I feel like the thing that I do hear a lot from from people is like you can feel that fan perspective, you can feel that love in it. You can feel the um, love for sure, dude. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I mean, we did so much research on this and, and, and put so much work into it. Like, it. It definitely takes on that perspective, I hope, that, that, that this was like, when we walked onto the forum floor for the first time, you know, it was like not just walking into my childhood, but like walking into my greatest childhood fantasy. Uh, and, and I don't know, I hope that that comes across eventually in the way that we deal with all the characters well i can tell you it has uh for, for at least for oh, me good. personally and other people that i've talked to you know you just talk about the the characters i mean it's just unbelievable i got guys who are now you know i'm in my mid-40s so i got buddies who think they invented the, mm-hmm. uh, the you know following the nba and they're like can you believe right. how much this guy is like magic johnson like can you believe how they got kareem <laughs> you know people are like because a lot of times people you know even i, I mean honestly jim when I, when I was reading about it i was like there's how the hell do they get magic right how did they get Kareem right? And you got it. You nailed it. Well, and that's a lot of people passed on the project for that reason. Like, you'll never be able to pass Magic and Kareem. And, you know, we found these two guys. When I when we saw Quincy the first time, I went online and looked him up. Quincy Isaiah, that's who plays on, Magic. Yeah, he plays Magic. And, you know, we saw him and was like, that's him. And, uh, and looked him up online. The only thing that was online when you Googled him, was his, he had played football at Kalamazoo College. He was the center on the football team. And so it was like his highlight reel, like 20 minutes of pancake blocks. Because he was, you know, he was a big dude. Uh, and then his IMDb page was blank. <laughs> uh, I, t- I took a picture of his Instagram. It had like 260 followers on it. Um, and so, you know, then Solomon wasn't even like out to be an actor. It just sort of came. He's a professor, you know, happened to play basketball at Cal, and so he embodied a lot of that internal thought and the brilliance, the mind of Kareem. Um, also, happens to be six foot eleven and can play basketball at a super high level. So I guess we just lucked out. But you know, I like to say it's you know it's a story about a dynasty, but there's a lot of an underdog story to it too. Between you know myself coming from from, from cartoons and. Quincy and Solomon who had never you know, had a professional acting gig before. And, you know, a lot of people just like Max, I mean, he had been working in the drama world, but like his main credits were like Godzilla and, you know, King Kong and, and not necessarily what you would think of. And, 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 you know, it's all of us sort of living out our greatest, uh, our greatest dream project. And, 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 I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's like I said, it's a story about a, a dynasty that's also internally kind of an underdog story too. When you go to when you go to to twelve step stuff now, um, mm-hmm. you know what what are you doing on the day to day like like to stay to stay vigilant? Because you mentioned that at the very beginning, you mm-hmm. know, like you you have to stay vigilant. And I was thinking, I thought about this before, just um, you know, writing keeps you humble, but so does sobriety, and it seems like. Mm-hmm. You know, it really does. And it seems like you don't have much of an ego. What are you doing day to day to maintain and, and be vigilant? Well, I think that's part of it. You know, like I go to, I go to 12 step meetings. I go to meetings that are, you know, all guys that have a lot of recovery. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, don't give me a lot of 
rope to 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 act like a big shot, and and also frankly a lot of them bigger shots. Um, and then you know my wife's sober. I'm, I'm you know one of the big challenges of this job because it's been so hard is like turning the stress off when I get away from the computer because it's not fair to her to put that on her, you know, or the or the kids, you know, like I don't, you know, I'm keenly aware of I don't want to put the stress of my job onto them. They don't deserve that and, and I don't want them talking about it in therapy in 10, 15 years either. <laughs> and uh and so, you know, we have a Courtney and I and and Cameron, my stepdaughter, we all uh, meditate every night for 20 minutes before Cameron's bedtime. And, uh, you know, I, I'm more cognizant of ever that, like, I, I need to stay in the thing because if I don't, I will, I'll, I'll go off the track. Yeah. You know? uh, I'll mess this stuff up. And, 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 and it's a form of ins- insanity where things will just look real to me. Like, I will all of a sudden think everybody's out to get me and I will be, you know, restless, irritable, and discontent, and I'll mess this thing up, and, and it's too important. Both my, my family and my marriage and my career, all those things are, are too important to me right now to, to let go of the things that have got me there, and, you know, maybe at some point I'll go, ah, screw it, and stop, but I, I, it hasn't happened yet, and I haven't, you know, one of the miracles of the work that I do is even in the worst days, I haven't wanted to take a drink, like, you know, for me, and I've been fortunate. Like my my worst day in my life was the day that my dog died. You know, he was with me sixteen years. You know, my, the whole first fifteen years I was sober, and and, yeah. and and as sad as I was that day, I checked into it. And I was like, if I'm ever going to drink, this is the day to do it. And there was not one iota cell in me, nothing, no part of me wanted to do it. And for me, someone who couldn't picture doing anything without a glass in my hand. You know that that's the miracle to me. That like there was not a shred of me that that wanted a drink to that thought a drink would make it easier or better or, or crave it in any way. All right, last question. That's, that's yeah. Good. Sure. That that's what. No, that's that's to me is when I look back and I'm like that's that's the, all the proof that I need that the thing works. All right, last 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 question. What do you tell somebody? Because a lot of people. Um, or some of the people who listen to this are people who don't, you know, they don't want to walk into a meeting or they're just kind of curious. You know, you hear the term sober mm-hmm. curious or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. What do you tell that person that they, they can't get a day? You know, they come up to you in one of those stag meetings and, and, and they're like, Hey man, like how do, how do I do this? What do you tell them? Well, I mean, there are two different people, the sober curious yeah. and the people that can't <laughs> yeah. get a day. The people that can't get a day, to me that implies like they want a day and they can't get it. When I work with people, like, I believe that you have to make this your life for some period of time. I know that maybe sounds daunting, but, like, I feel like you really have to jump into it with both feet and, and do everything that they sort of say to do. At least I did. I mean, it didn't, it didn't work until I did it 100%. And, you know, and then the other thing is, like, all these cliches are really true. Like, to me, you know, when I first heard things like one day at a time or whatever, like, oh, God, you're talking about forever um but like that really changed the way that i looked at the world like i can pretty much do anything for an hour a minute a day and uh and 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 so you know that i think is also really important just to look at it like today just make it to a meeting tomorrow and and take it that way 
So those are sort of my, my two big pieces of, of advice. Dive in with both feet and really like learn the idea of a day at a time. Dude, I cannot thank you enough for the time. This means this oh, sure. means a lot Thanks to me, dude. You know, it's just it means a lot that you're you're out there um, sharing this stuff. So, because uh, again, it goes back to the Superman rides the bus thing. You all, all of a sudden become this relatable guy, and I and I think it really helps people. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I was you know I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, my, and I, my, won't, I, I hate listening to myself, but <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate the opportunity and the time and, and, and the platform. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, dude. Uh, my, you know, my brother lives out in Hermosa. He's a therapist out there and he's he's sober. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I'm sure you probably, his name's Kevin Souza. You probably, maybe seen him. He goes to a lot of those stag meetings, so you never know if you come across him. It but sounds dude, familiar, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he plays a lot of music out there. He's a good dude. So if you bump into him, say hey, all right? I will, absolutely. I'm uh, the same. All right. Well, thanks, Jim. I'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for making this work. Yeah, you got it. Later. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.